Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Julia Owens. She is the CEO of Ann Arbor, Michigan-based Melendo Therapeutics. This company develops drugs for rare endocrine disorders. Prader-Willi syndrome, a terrible genetic disorder that causes young people to develop voracious appetites and which leads to severe obesity, is the focus of the company's lead drug candidate. It's in a phase three clinical trial. Melendo recently went public via a reverse merger, so its story is now being taken to a wider audience. But part of what I find interesting here is the backstory of resilience. Melendo has had to grit its teeth more than once to get where it is today. Like so many startups, it has seen a couple of programs go up in smoke. And that forced the company to ask itself, now what do we do? Julia and her team have found a way to pivot, as they say. Now one thing I should add, Julia is one of the recruits who will be joining me on the Kilimanjaro climb to fight cancer. She is one of the 28 biotech executives and investors who will be joining me on the highest peak in Africa this summer. As a member of the team, she's committed to raising $50,000 for cancer research at Fred Hutch, a world leader. I hope you'll consider supporting her and others on the team. I'm providing links to help you do that on TimmermanReport.com. Which reminds me, I need to tell you about some terrific Cancer Summit events I'm organizing this spring to raise money for cancer research at Fred Hutch. R&D leaders like Hal Barron of GSK, David Shankine of GV and Agios, Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine, and Ira Melman of Genentech are a few of the notable speakers. The first event to watch on your calendar is Boston Cancer Summit on April 16. The second is the San Francisco Cancer Summit on April 18. Space is limited in both places and tickets are going on a first come first serve basis. I recommend getting tickets early as these events sold out in advance last year. You can see the full speaker lineup and agenda on a free post at TimmermanReport.com. Real quick, now there are two other but terrific biotech community events I want to tell you about. One is the Mass Bio Annual Meeting. This year it's called the State of Possible Conference. It's coming up March 27 and 28 in Cambridge. Bruce Booth, George Church, John Mariganori, and Katrine Bosley are a few of the notable speakers. Go to massbio.org for more information and to register. You can also join me at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle on April 24-25 for the Life Science Innovation Northwest Conference. Roger Perlmutter, the president of Merck Research Laboratories, is the keynote speaker. Then there will be a fireside chat with David Baker of the University of Washington's Institute of Protein Design. That's going to be a good session. Visit www.lifesciencewa.org for more information. And you can use a promo code 2019LUKE all one word, capital L, to save $100 on your registration fee. Not a bad deal. Now, please join me and Julia Owens of Melendo Therapeutics on the long run. Julia Owens, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Thanks for having me, Luke. So, Julia, uh, first off, before we get started, I want to let the listeners know that I want to thank you for joining the Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer campaign that I'm doing this year for uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Uh, you're part of a team, for those who haven't uh, followed this, of 28 biotech executives and investors 
who are uh, each pledging to get themselves in shape to climb the highest peak in Africa, 19,000 feet, uh, and raise $50,000 for cancer research this year at a great institution. So uh, you're kind of one of these people who's uh, shown a willingness to push yourself uh, out of your normal comfort zone uh, to do something a little extra for for patients. And so for that, I I really um, want to thank you for that. Well, I thank you for including me. I'm um, terrified, but incredibly excited about uh, this and being part of such a great group of executives um, and doing this towards uh, such an important, um, you know, mission towards trying to cure cancer, trying to raise a million dollars for cancer research is um, a motivation to pull me outside that comfort zone and, and force me to go uh, sleep on the ground for more than a week. <laughs> you'll, you'll be just fine. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, now uh, I think in the biotech community, people would know you less as a hiker and more as the CEO of Melendo Therapeutics, uh, a company that's developing treatments for rare endocrine disorders. You're based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, go Wolverines, I guess. Are, are you, are you a fan? Yeah, go blue. <laughs> okay. You, you, know, you can't live in Ann Arbor and not be a Michigan fan. It's kind of required. You have to be. And you know, I'm a Wisconsin Badger, right? I'll, I'll try not to hold this against you. And I won't hold that against you. Okay. Yeah, it's not as bad as if you were an Ohio State fan. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> okay. So Julia, how, um, tell us about, uh, where your story begins personally before we get into the professional stuff. So where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, no kidding. Yes, I'm back here near family, which is a wonderful opportunity to build a company um, where I grew up and where I have a lot of family that my my kids can grow up around. Um, But I graduated from high school here and then moved to California for college and spent many years out in the San Francisco Bay Area. I did my undergraduate work at uh, Berkeley and I did my PhD at uh, UCSF. Uh, and then worked my next two jobs. Yeah, we'll get there in a second. But Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, what did your parents do? Were they part of the university community? Yeah, my my family moved here when my dad was doing his MBA at Michigan. So most of my family are actually native New Yorkers. Um, and my dad did his MBA at Michigan. They loved Ann Arbor and the quality of life. Uh, my dad went on to be a, a executive or an administrator at the University of Michigan, although um, passed away when I was a, a kid. And what about your mom? My mom is was a math teacher. She's retired now, um, but she taught high school math um, and was always a really central role uh, in my life and uh, quite a model uh, for me as someone who had multiple uh, graduate degrees and worked full-time my whole childhood and, and raised my sister and I by herself after my father passed away. Okay, so you mentioned a sister and any other siblings? My mother's remarried and I have two stepbrothers and, and a large family of nieces and nephews. Your dad dying when you were young, like in high school, right? I mean, that, um, that, that's a pretty formative age. What did that experience, how did that shape your life arc? Yeah, I have to say it is probably one of the largest determinants in me doing what I do today. My dad was diagnosed with glioblastoma um, when uh, he was 43, and um, I was 14 years old. And he 
unfortunately went downhill very quickly. He was young and fit. We used to camp and hike and spend lots of time outdoors skiing. Um, and he, you know, underwent clinical trials, participated in um, a number of different efforts to beat his disease, but uh, passed away in less than a year uh, at 44 years old while I was um, 15. So that was really hard. Uh, you know, it's hard for anyone to lose a parent or a close family member, especially when you're an adolescent. Um, and that really helped inspire me to want to help change the course of, of disease. And I think was pivotal in ultimately driving me into the type of work I do today, uh, you know, where I really do feel that drives the effort to help the patient. Now, when um, did the lights turn on for you about science or molecular biology? When did that get interesting? Yeah, I, I had always had a lot of interest in science and I've always been comfortable in science um, and that's always been a passion. Uh, but the, the pivot to molecular biology and ultimately drug development, I mean, I've had a number of key mentors along the way who have, who have helped inspire me and, and teach me throughout. Um, you know, I had a, a chemistry uh, professor or chem chemistry teacher in high school who used to go do summer workshops at Berkeley. And so I wanted to go to Berkeley because that's where my chemistry, high school chemistry teacher um, did her studying. So I applied and got into an undergraduate chemistry program at, at Berkeley. Um, while I was at Berkeley, I had the opportunity to work with a number of really um, interesting researchers, most influential was of which was Carolyn Bertozzi. Um, and Carolyn and I, uh, I worked with her in her lab, and uh, she was the one who convinced me that actually I should make sure I know more about biology, not just organic chemistry, and encouraged me to take um, organic chemistry, uh, but also go take a molecular and cellular biology class. Okay. I took that with Bob Tejan, which will come forward again in a moment. Okay, so being an upper Midwestern girl, going out to California, you know, it's nice, it's warm, sunny. <laughs> that probably <laughs> had some appeal, I bet. Um, it, but you, you go... Not all bad. It wasn't bad. I mean, the weather of California certainly helped. I was also someone who's always a little antsy, always pushing myself, always looking for more. I knew I wasn't going to go to the University of Michigan. I needed to get far away from where I had spent my childhood. Um, in some ways, Berkeley is very, very similar to Ann Arbor. It's a really liberal community uh, with a um, large research institution. And so I may have gone completely across the country, but I went from an environment um, where I had been comfortable to one that was not actually dramatically that different. Yeah, they're both great public institutions with long, long history. Okay, so you, you decide to study, um, uh, you know, and you get to meet Carolyn Bertozzi uh, as an undergraduate, even, um, at Berkeley? Yeah, so Carolyn was a grad student, and I was her undergrad who worked uh, in an organic chemistry lab in Berkeley with her. Uh, and so this was pretty early on in, in both of our careers, and it was wonderful. She was the first one who gave me a chance to, you know, work at the bench and learn basic lab skills, and um, it was wonderful. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, for those not familiar, she's now faculty at Stanford, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, doing all kinds of cool things with chemical biology. Um, okay, so Berkeley, you, you get your bachelor's, molecular and cell biology, 
Uh, and then you you uh, you decide to uh, to go to graduate school, and that was just across the bay, right? UCSF. Correct. What uh, what was your driving research thesis in those years? Yeah, I, I worked on uh, cell cycle control of DNA re replication. But really, for me, going to grad school was maybe not as well engineered as it should have been. It was hmm. I just got a couple degrees from Berkeley. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Um, oh, you mean I can go to grad school and they're going to pay me a stipend and I can continue to learn and study science? Cool, I'll do that. Um, there wasn't a lot of forethought uh, into where I was going to go from there or what I was going to do, except that I liked science, I liked living in the Bay Area, and um, I liked learning. And so grad school was, to me, a an interesting transition because suddenly when I got there, I actually needed to then figure out what I was going to do with my life. Yeah. And, and it's a, it was biochemistry, right? I mean, you, you talk about the cell cycle, but I mean, this is, um, this is not easy stuff. <laughs> Did you decide at some point early on that, it, I mean, like a lot of graduate students that you wanted to become a faculty member or, or were you already thinking outside the box? From an early time. Yeah, it became pretty clear to me by my second year of grad school that I wasn't met, cut out to be a researcher. I mean, that I could do it and that I could be successful at it, but that I wasn't um, going to be happy or satisfied with that. I liked the first year of grad school when you got to take tons of different classes and learn about lots of different things. My favorite class was bioregulatory mechanisms. Um, and you got to try out lots of different labs and do rotations. That was heaven. Second year of grad school, suddenly you're working in a single lab on a single project, blinders on, at the bench, you know, practically 24-7. And I realized that this wasn't me, um, that I like the variety. I like the higher level. I like interacting with lots of different people um, and that um, academic research, but even bench research in industry wasn't going to be for me. But, um, you know, this was back in the 90s. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about other alternatives. In fact, it was, you know, decidedly frowned upon. Now at UCSF, they, ha they have a lot of different opportunities to learn about other career tracks and expo explore different possibilities. But for me, it was, you know, you're in, an, in a graduate program. If you're not going to become a professor, then you're going to go work in research in um, industry. And neither of those really appealed to me. So it was a bit of a, a time of a lot of soul searching to figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. Well, that set of interests that you describe could also apply to um, a lot of generalist investors, <laughs> venture capital, you know, portfolio managers, even journalists. You know, it's something new every day, a lot of variety. And that's that's why we like it. Absolutely. And so I had to spend a lot of time figuring out what those possibilities were and what was the right fit for me. Um, I did a ton of informational in, in, uh, interviews, did lots of networking, went to as, you know, as many opportunities to learn and read and, about different career options. And, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to be in journalism. I'm, you know, writing is not my forte by any stretch. Um, I, but I did look at roles as venture in venture capital or in um, other portfolio management. I did explore roles in regulatory affairs or project management. But ultimately, for me, it was that interface between business and science that I was most excited about. My mother um, had gotten me started investing in stocks when I was, I think, about 12 years old. Um, and I ran a, a 
grad school uh, stock club where we got together regularly and invested in stocks together and always had a lot of interest, although not a lot of um, formal training in that. And I, I kind of figured out over the course of grad school that something that was at the interface of business and science was going to be the right fit for me. Wow. Took a uh, bunch of classes over at the Haas Business School and tried to teach myself how that works. Precocious stock investments at the age of 12. Do you remember any of those bets? Yeah, my mom got me started on, on um, I forget what they're called, basically where you can buy a single share at a time in individual stocks. I think one of the very first stocks I owned was Intel. Huh. <laughs> Your graduate school classmates probably looked at you funny like, well, I mean, it sounds like a good idea, this financial planning for the future, but like, who has time for that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so you start your career, uh, I think in your bio, you say that you went to tech transfer at UCSF. Um, now that I was is, actually really lucky. They gave me the opportunity to do an internship. Well, that's a really interesting lens on the world. You really are a liaison between academia and industry. Um, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was exactly where I, I learned kind of what that interface was. And I was very fortunate. The, the UCSF um, Office of Technology Management had only recently been established um, when I was in grad school there. Prior to that, uh, the technologies out of all the different UC campuses were managed out of the office of the president over in Oakland. Um, and so in each individual campus was slowly but surely setting up their own office and uh, UCSF had just set up there. So I actually went to them while I was still in grad school and said, hey, I'd like to do an internship here. I'd like to learn about this. Um, they actually laughed at me and said, no, 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 no. We, need, we might take an MBA as a um, intern, but not some biochemistry grad student. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, I guess it was good that I didn't take no for an answer because I went back a little bit later and said, I heard you, but I really think I can add value. I think I know more business than an average grad student and, and I'm willing to volunteer here. I really want to learn. And I guess I was compelling enough because they allowed me to start by volunteering there um, pretty quickly, offered me a part-time job and then offered me a full-time role right af out of grad school. So that was you know, my, my first transition in the business side of things. And it was a really good way, as you said, to uh, start navigating that space between uh, business and science and was a really good opportunity for me to start understanding on how a lot of how a lot of that worked. That's that's really interesting. You, you were beginning to show some of that, maybe that CEO type assertiveness right there too, like not taking no <laughs> for an answer. <laughs> okay, so it, how, how long did you stay there at UCSF? I was only there for a, about a year. Um, it became apparent pretty quickly that I wanted to be in a company where the actual drug development was happening. And I had the opportunity to join Teleric, you know, one of the hottest companies in the Bay Area at the time. And I had mentioned before that I had taken undergraduate MCB from Bob Tejan, who was one of the founders of Teleric. Um, so I had the opportunity to go work there uh, and jumped at it. That is part of the story where I, I'm more familiar because I, I think, you know, I mean, on my newsletter, I wrote about the Teleric alumni. There were so many. Yeah. I, I've noticed this pattern over time. Lots and lots of people who've gone on to do interesting things later in their careers they, they trace their origins back to that place. Um, you mentioned Bob Teagan, Dave Goodell was there um, as well. Uh, what was it about that place that uh, created such a stimulating environment? 
Yeah, it really was a, a special and yet very quirky um, place. And I was really lucky to get to spend five years uh, working there. I joined when they were uh, venture-backed and ultimately, you know, they, they were acquired by Amgen. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of just intense scientific rigor um, and focus on um, quest for knowledge. This was a period of time where um, the genome was just being sequenced, um, but uh, hadn't been yet. Uh, think tools like knockout mice were brand new. Um, one of my early roles there was helping assemble our combinatorial chemistry library because those were brand new. So it was a time, um, late 90s, it, where there was a culmination of a lot of new science. Um, and then, you know, Dave Goodell, um, who had come from Genentech, brought along with Bob Tejan and Steve McKnight um, this focus on rigorous science. And so taking all these new tools, focusing on it and doing drug development, small molecule drug development, um, driven by no novel validation and understanding of science in a way that I, I think was unique. And then culturally, it was this very rigorous, intensive environment. I mean, there were good and bad in that. It was very much a sink or swim sort of environment at times. Um, but if you could cut it, you could really go far and have a lot of latitude. And so as a brand new business development person, um, I got to get a lot of experience and work on a lot of different types of deals and be involved in um, a lot of different aspects of science um, in a unique opportunity. You really needed to know the technical part uh, in, in some intimacy uh, in order to, to perform in a business development function at a company like that, it sounds like. I think it, at Telerik in particular, it was very helpful to have that scientific background. Although, you know, I was hired in by uh, Camille Samuels, who's quite successful in our business as well. And she had come without um, a PhD and had been quite successful there as well. So there were exceptions to that rule. But I do think I was able to um, garner respect with a lot of the scientists I worked closely with. Um, and uh, as a result of my knowledge and comfort around the science, yeah. Then what comes next after Tularic? You, you, you moved to a couple different startups before your current one, Melendo. Correct. So I've been at um, four companies now over the last 20 years. Um, so I left Tularic uh, to join a startup called Quatrix Pharmaceuticals. Um, that was working, you know, this was one of the early companies that was looking to in-license products, often from pharma, uh, develop them, and then out-license them. And I know in assembling a pipeline through in-licensing um, is much more common nowadays, but um, 15 years ago, it was less so. And uh, this company was founded by a whole bunch of executives from Park Davis, um, who had left when Pfizer took over, had deep chops in drug development, had developed Lipitor amongst other drugs, um, and uh, were backed by some top-tier VCs from Interwest and Fraser and MPM and Venrock and others with this blank slate of let's do really high-quality drug development um, and find really interesting assets and create value out of those. Um, what they were lacking is someone to really help them find those assets and get the deals done. So I was excited about the opportunity to join, I think, as employee 10 um, at this well-funded company with high-quality drug developers and help them. And this was also your ticket, your ticket back to Michigan. 
Well, I wasn't actually looking to get back to Michigan. In fact, it took a lot of convincing to move me back. My husband's from Miami. Um, you know, <laughs> we liked San Francisco. Uh, I was more willing to entertain a movement back to Michigan than I think an average BD person in the Bay Area would have been. But that was not something I was looking for or ever would have expected I would have done. In fact, I made a deal with my uh, husband that if after three to four years, um, you know, this wasn't working, we'd move either rapidly back to San Francisco or move to Boston. There was no intention um, to stay in Ann Arbor for very long, although I have to say it worked out well. I mean, I've I always work a lot of hours, travel a lot. That's who I am. I'm very passionate about my work. But I also have two kids and um, having family around to support, provide a support structure um, was really helpful. So we did happen to move back to Ann Arbor uh, when my daughter was one years old. And I do think that um, having family around helps. And I have found that uh, having uh, higher quality childcare, lower cost of living um, and shorter commutes in Ann Arbor is certainly an advantage when you have young kids. I'm sure the grandparents loved loved that. It's been good. <laughs> so, and, and but this the situation you describe um, with Quatrix, I mean, that's one of those where a lot of human capital gets freed up. Um, it, it often doesn't look that way at the beginning. Like it looks like a whole lot of people are losing their jobs, and it's sad and kind of depressing. And oh, what might have been at Pfizer slash Park Davis, um, but. You know, venture capital comes in, puts some money in combination with those people. Maybe if you find some right assets, um, who knows? Maybe you can develop a drug um, that uh, in, a, in a more efficient way or a way that never would have happened at the big company. So that, that sounds like the situation you were you were entering. Yeah, it was an interesting premise. Um, as with so many biotechs, we, we had our own twists and turns and challenges in development with some of the pipeline we assembled at um, Quatrix. But it was a exciting environment. And for me, who had come in, um, having been a biochemist and had, having worked at a company like Telerik that really was a research engine, first and foremost, we had some development programs, but, but it was really a research-heavy organization. This was an opportunity for me to um, learn drug development in a really rigorous way um, and to to be the BD person and get to do a variety of deals in licensing, partnering, um, you know, alliance management, due diligence, you name it. I got to get involved in all the different aspects, which was exciting. And to work with a high quality group of investors from the Bay Area that frankly, I knew if I did a good job would be glad to help me find that next job moving me back out to the Bay Area if that's what I decided I wanted to do. Okay, but as employee number 10, um, I mean, you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. I mean, did you report to the CEO? I reported to the um, chief operating officer. Okay, but you know, you, all that stuff you described with the due diligence, the, the, the identifying of assets, I mean, you didn't have like a whole battalion of people to do stuff for you. No, no, we operated pretty lean and mean. And I think that's a, you know, pattern that's necessary in a, in a small biotech. I, uh, you know, Telerik, I joined as about employee 100 and we grew to 400. That was my big company experience, which I know is laughable to others. <laughs> but uh, every company since has, that I've been at has never grown beyond 50. Um, so I've worked a lot in that um, 10 to 50 to 40 employee range um, where you do have to rely on external resources and you do um, have to count on your employees wearing a lot of different hats. 
you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. More than 65 pharmaceutical companies and universities have taken advantage of these group licenses. For more information, write to luke at timmermanreport.com. And have you heard about the Cancer Summit series of events I'm organizing this spring to raise money for cancer research at Fred Hutch? Cancer R&D leaders like Hal Barron of GSK, David Shankine of GV and Agios, Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine, and Ira Melman of Genentech are just a few of the standout speakers who are coming together at these events. All proceeds will go to cancer research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. So mark your calendars for the Boston Cancer Summit on April 16 and the San Francisco Cancer Summit on April 18. Space is limited in both places and tickets are going on a first come first served basis. I recommend getting tickets early as both of these events sold out in advance last year. You can see the full speaker lineup and agenda at TimmermanReport.com. Now, I know that you made another stop there at Lysera, and that was a company that came out of uh, University of Michigan, Gary Glick's lab, I think. Um, so, some interesting ideas around immunology. Um, what was your, did you, did you step up in responsibility, or what was your, um, your mission at that company? Yeah, I was senior vice president of corporate development and strategy. So I had spent six years at Quatrix in you know increasing roles and had gotten a lot of uh, opportunity to lead programs to do deals there. Uh, I, we ultimately uh, licensed out our lead product to Shinogi, um, and I licensed myself out of a job, which was just fine because I was ready to move on to a new opportunity after six years at at um, one company. And I was exploring different opportunities at the coasts um, in various venture-backed companies. And I had an opportunity to join uh, Gary and others at Lysera. Um, and it was a great opportunity to work in that immuno-oncology, um, you know, immunoregulation space that was um, really exciting. We did a number of deals with Merck um, and... Uh, moved a number of programs into clinical development uh, in the time I was there. So it was a lot of fun. But then you get the call to become a CEO. How did that happen? Yeah, so I was um, exploring various next career options and having been at three companies, um, I was starting to have that itch to be an entrepreneur, to start um, on the ground floor and form something new. I actually was very close to moving to Boston to be an entrepreneur in residence at one of those notable um, Boston build from the ground up VC shops. Um, when I got a phone call from a friend, uh, a friend who worked in the biotech industry, had uh, been at Park Davis, uh, Riley Kripola, and uh, Riley had terminal cancer. She had adrenal cortical carcinoma, um, and she also had a, a drug candidate that she had been working on in collaboration with um, the University of Michigan. Her husband was there, as was Gary Hammer, um, currently the president of the Endocrine Society and, and the head of the Endocrine Oncology Program at the University of Michigan. And they had this interesting compound with some cool data, um, and Riley wanted help forming a company so that they could get this into clinical trials. And her aspiration was to have that treat and potentially cure herself. And I have to say, having lost my dad to cancer um, at you know a young age, like and Riley was at a, a 
similar young age and had young kids, um, I, I just had this sweet spot. I had to step in and see if we couldn't raise money and do something um, with this interesting product and to potentially help a, um, a friend who had a fatal disease. Wow, those are such um, tremendously motivating stories that you see every once in a while where a, a scientist um, has, or a scientific family member has one of these diseases and they just go all in with all the, the intellectual uh, energy, physical energy they've got. And it's, it's something to see, something to be a part of. Yeah, it was, it was amazing, but I didn't have the personal um, financial runway to, to give myself too long on this. I kind of said, look, I'll help you out for a few months. Um, I was still consulting at Lysera, helping them wrap out a project as I defined what my next step was going to be. And I said, we'll spend a few months and see if we can um, raise some money here. And we were very fortunate, actually. Within a few months, uh, Fraser Healthcare had given us uh, money to do uh, a seed round, and the state of Michigan matched that. And that gave us an initial half a million dollars. And not even two months later, we raised a $15 million Series A um, where 5AM and Osage came and joined Fraser um, to back the company, which is now Melendo, but at that time was called Aterracore. And so the mission there was to just focus on this asset and getting it through tox into the clinic and running a quick phase one clinical study in patients and showing that it could um, treat adrenal cancer. We weren't aiming to build a big organization. Um, it was enough money to get to clinical proof of concept um, and assume that we would then sell off to someone else um, to do later stage development and ultimately commercialize the drug. Now, what year was this company getting started? We've, we founded the company almost exactly seven years ago. So January of 2012 was when we started the company. The Series um, A was in July of 2012. And uh, this is... This is you as the entrepreneur CEO. I mean, you uh, were you working your network in the investor community to, to raise that money along with um, Riley? Yeah, so I was doing most of that. Uh, Riley, unfortunately, had, had failing health and uh, was involved as much as she could be. And she was a remarkable woman. Um, but yeah, uh, I was able to call on a lot of pre-existing relationships in the venture community from um, both my years of living out in San Francisco and many of the uh, investors I had worked with in, in my prior organization. So Frazier led um, the Series A um, and I, you know, Frazier had been the founding investor in Quatrix and, and um, had been the one who enticed me to move from San Francisco to Ann Arbor. So uh, by you know, this was the third Fraser portfolio company I had, I had worked in by then. Yeah, long-standing relationships. Um, they, they do make uh, the biotech startup world go round. Um, now, now becoming a CEO, did you <laughs> did you ruminate much on this? Like, read, start reading books about you know what kind of leader you wanted to be. I mean. I probably could have and should have, and I'm I'm still spending some time now um, trying to learn some of those skills that I never got because I never worked in some of the big pharma's or um, larger organizations where you train people to um, lead teams and define culture and 
manage direct reports. It, that I had never had any of that. I hadn't actually even had any direct reports. In business development, you manage um, very big deals and you work with lots of people, but you don't tend to have teams, especially if you're in business development, where often you know business development is a department of one. So um, I should have maybe done some of that, but I jumped in um, kind of feet first and um, we were focused on raising the money, which uh, happened surprisingly quickly, and then on doing the drug development. So we just focused on building the team we needed to you know, manufacture the drug candidate, do the talks, file the IND, and get into the clinic. Um, we, again, we weren't looking to build the next Genentech. We were looking to um, show this drug could help adrenal cortical carcinoma patients um, as quickly as we could. Well, you know, um, even if even the people who built the next Genentech, they didn't know everything on day one either. <laughs> Somebody just has to like, you know, make the decision to to take the leap and and you learn a lot of things along the way. Um, so, uh, gosh, OK, so a Terracore, you, you start out with this adrenal cancer uh, program. Now, this is where I think the story gets interesting for a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience out there, because, you know, as we talked about before the show, um, you're on, you've had to pivot a couple times. Um, I think you're on version, is it 2.0 or 3.0 with what's now Melendo? <laughs> um, you know, this is a real test of one's uh, entrepreneurial resilience, creativity, stamina, all that. Um, so what how, how did how did things um, go uh, in in an unhappy direction there with that first project? Yeah, I would say that um, things went relatively smoothly um, as we you know moved the program into talks, um, assembled our first IND, um, put together our uh, protocol for our phase one study um, with the really uh, sad um, outcome of unfortunately Riley passing away a matter of weeks before we um, we began the clinical trial itself. We were scrambling to try to put together a single patient um, IND to get the drug to her in time and um, we weren't able to move quickly enough because adrenal cancer is a particularly horrible disease. But well, from sad. a company standpoint, we, we were moving along pretty smoothly. And yeah, we were able to draw on a, a pretty deep talent pool of ex-Park Davis folks in the Ann Arbor area to, to move things along. The challenge we ultimately had was um, the, the clinical hypothesis was based on um, evidence we had seen in animal models of very high uh, exposures of the drug being able to cause apoptosis in cells derived from the adrenal cortex. And we um, did a 14 cohort dose escalation study in adrenal cancer patients over a couple year period, um, though ultimately dosing over 60 patients, which in an ultra, ultra um, rare cancer was a, a pretty heroic effort. And we were never able to get human exposures high enough to truly test the hypothesis. We saw a few hints of activity, a few patients where they had stable disease or some tumor shrinkage, but nothing profound. And despite efforts at reformulation and several other things, we couldn't get the exposures high enough um, to make this drug candidate viable in cancer. Okay. So and we and this was really bit stuck. You were really like a, a single product company at this point, as you say, not trying to be the next Genentech. So then what? Correct. Well, so um, this is about uh, 2015 at that point. 
and uh, cash is starting to get low and it's starting to become apparent that um, the future of this drug in adrenal cancer isn't as promising as we thought. Um, but meanwhile, we had gotten to know the biology of the drug pretty well. We had started to realize that at much lower exposures than we were targeting, it had very interesting endocrine effects and might have applicability in uh, diseases that result from endocrine hormone um, excess, adrenal steroid production um, being kind of in overdrive, and sought to pivot the company a little bit to move into that endocrine focus. And um, again, our, our the third co-founder of the company was an endocrinologist. University of Michigan has some deep expertise in adrenal biology. So we were able to tap into some of that and say, let's take this compound, nivanamide, and, and move it into um, endocrine diseases. Meanwhile, uh, we also in-licensed another new asset that we called MLE4901 uh, from AstraZeneca. And uh, we brought in a compound for polycystic ovary syndrome, another endocrine uh, disorder. Um, and the compound was a neurokinin-3 receptor antagonist that uh, we thought could have some interesting effects in PCOS. Um, it was on the basis of those two compounds and really changing the business model of the company to having a broader pipeline in endocrine drug development that we uh, raised our Series B financing in the end of 2015. Now so we that, raised a $62 million round. Now, that was a story that I remember talking with you about at the time, um, $65 million Series B. It was pretty big at the time. It still is. <laughs> um, but more interesting than that, um, yeah, you started educating me about this thing, polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, which um, I knew nothing about. I'd never heard any, I've covered a lot of areas of drug development, uh, a lot of rare diseases. Um, but here was one that was actually quite common. Um, it's common among women and uh, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and that, that intrigued me right there. Like maybe, maybe, maybe I've got a blind spot here. Maybe, well, and perhaps <laughs> maybe, maybe lots of men who invest have that same blind spot. Uh, tell me more, Julia. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I do think PCOS is a, uh, one of those indications is actually quite common, as you noted. It impacts about 6 to 10 million women in the U.S. Um, with no real good treatments available, yet uh, has little attention. And I do think that honestly relates to the fact that um, many investors are men. Um, we actually had a lot more success when we were raising our uh, Series B financing and trying to reach out to whoever the female uh, partner was at each requisite uh, venture capital firm. Um, not that some men didn't understand the story very well, though, but I do think there was less familiarity with it and um, than might have been true otherwise. Well, the and other agreed, thing most people hadn't heard about the company at that stage. That was when we first tried to kind of market or, you know, create a little PR and awareness of what we were doing. Uh, Ateracor was really operating below the radar screen and purposefully. Yeah, yeah. So you got this asset from AstraZeneca, which, you know, like a big pharma company, it had done all the usual preclinical tox stuff in a rigorous way. And and you, I think it was pretty close to ready for clinical trials. So that that's what the money was there for, right? Yeah, actually, it had already been studied in over 200 patients. So there was an open IND um, clinical experience in 200 patients and a full um, data package. So you've noticed over the past few years now, AstraZeneca has done some externalization of quite a bit of their pipeline. Ours was the very first example of that, where they outlicensed one of their um, interesting assets, and they had 
previously studied the compound in schizophrenia, hadn't seen any biological activity, but had shown the compound was well to- tolerated, shown it, it hit its re- target receptor um, potently, and so entered it into a program they had internally to try to reposition uh, clinically well tolerated and interesting compounds. And that's where they had come up with the idea of studying this compound in both PCOS as well as in menopausal hot flashes. So we in-licensed the drug with a really robust data package and actually moved directly into a phase 2B study in PCOS, and we're running a phase 2 study in VMS, so or hot flashes, which is why the Series B financing that NEA, uh, Roche, and others led uh, was so large is because we were um, running four phase 2 studies uh, across two different molecules. And it's one of those things where this happens often in pharma, where somebody does a portfolio review at the end of the year and says, you know, we're going to focus on, you know, these four or five therapeutic areas and all this other stuff, um, you know, someone else can go do. <laughs> yep. And, and, so well, this- and our premise was very strong. Um, ultimately, that compound showed some phenomenal clinical data in the treatment of hot flashes. And we had a really um, interesting PCOS study recruiting Um, In fact, uh, we presented some great data uh, through an investigator-initiated study on the compound in the treatment of hot flashes. We presented back-to-back with another company, Ogeda, that had a similar mechanism of action um, showing really remarkable activity in the treatment of hot flashes. Um, Ogeda was ultimately acquired by Astellas in a deal that I think reached about a billion dollars, and Astellas has recently announced phase 2B results um, for that program. So I think our bet on the biology was sound. So Unfortunately the, for the our program, we saw safety issues. Right, right. So the activity's looking good. This is uh, encouraging. Uh, you, you've got you know some money and the team together to do this, but then you hit the iceberg. What happened there? Yep, we did. Um, unforeseen liver toxicity. So as I mentioned, the study compound had been previously studied in over 200 subjects. You know, the tox work had been done. There was nothing in there. We had done really rigorous diligence, as had those investors who backed our Series B financing. But all the studies to date had only been done for 28 days. Um, as in our, as we got to longer periods of time in the PCOS study, um, and we were dosing patients out to three and four months. Uh, we started seeing a pattern of uh, elevations in transaminases. So we saw increases in uh, ALT um, that were pretty significant. Um, you know, no, everything was rehe- reversible, no cases of highs law. We didn't harm patients, um, but it really was starting to look like it was not going to be a viable drug, at least for women's healthcare indications that, um, you know, are not fatal. Was this cumulative toxicity or was it just showing up in more and more patients as, you know, the three or four month time frame rolled around? Yeah, it was starting to crop up at higher frequency and at higher multiples of upper limit of normal um, as we were treating patients for longer. And that was what made us concerned because sometimes you'll see some early blips, but they'll go away over longer periods of time. This did not seem to be the case. And honestly, we didn't spend a lot of time investigating the mechanism or the details. The reality was the drug was not going to be commercially viable. So we pretty rapidly um, made a decision in um, the, what was that, the summer uh, of 2017 
that we weren't going to move forward. And we had a board call and we laid out the data and we said, uh, we just don't think there's a path forward. And we rapidly shut down all of our clinical studies on the compound uh, and we returned the rights to MLE 4901 to AstraZeneca. It was a really hard time. Did you have that sinking feeling in your stomach? I mean, gosh, that's that's got to be hard. Yeah, it was. It was definitely the most trying time in um, in my career where, you know, we had everything looking just right. Um, and we had hired in some great team members. We had brought on some new board members. We had the financing. We had the clinical strategy. The FDA had been really supportive of our plans. And suddenly this came um, up in a pretty rapid um, time period. But, you know, the data was so clear. There was no point in, I mean, it was a hard decision on one hand, but it was also one of the easiest because it was very clear that this wasn't going to be a viable drug for patients. So then we had to turn to what do we do to the company now? We had already pivoted from, you know, cancer into endocrine. We had already changed the name from a Terracor to Melendo, repositioned the pipeline, um, and now we were stuck yet again. And it wasn't that long. It was it was less than 18 months after we had done our Series B. And that was both good and bad. So good because you had some money, you had some runway to figure something out, but bad in that, I mean, people <laughs> had put a lot of money in here and they were staring at possibly losing all of it, right? Yep, exactly. So we we had a board meeting in June of 2017 or 20 yeah 2017 um, where we basically said guys we recommend that we shut this whole program down um, but honestly we don't know exactly what the next step is this has literally just happened give us a few weeks to come up with a strategy and a plan for for where we hope to go from here. Um, and so we reported back to the board a short time later, kind of a parallel path. We were gonna, you know, we had another product. We had an avanamide which we had moved into um, endocrine diseases. And we're actually starting to see some really interesting data in congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, but we had raised enough money and built out a team that was more than was needed to just focus on that asset. So. Um, we had a several different options. We had, you know, downsize the team to just focus on our remaining asset. Um, there was seeking to bring in another asset, although that's really hard to find and really hard to do. We had successfully done it twice, but um, and we were continually on the outlook for new programs, um, especially once we had pivoted to a pipeline strategy where we wanted to have multiple different treatments in endocrine diseases. But could we find something that could be plugged in um, quickly enough, given, as you said, a lot of money had gone in and investors wanted to know how that was going to be um, used. Or our final option was wind things down and, and sell off um, our remaining asset to provide enough return to, you know, hopefully make some money for our investors on, on what they had invested in the company. Liquidate so that they can salvage like, you know, I don't know, 30 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar or something. Who knows what we could have gotten in terms of deal? We did have the cash in the in the company still, and we had this interesting um, clinical proof of concept data in Nivanamide. But it wasn't going to be the. I mean, honestly, our our competitor Ogeda, who had been working in um, with a neurokinin three receptor, had had just sold for a billion dollars. I mean, we had had five term sheets on the table to do crossover rounds at huge step ups. We were looking at an IPO. We were presenting at J P Morgan. 
the investors had had in their eyes and we had had in our eyes, you know, a 10x. Um, and suddenly it's, well, maybe we can return the money to our, you know, investors and, and you know, call it a day. It all so, goes up in smoke. And at this point, you know, this is where, you know, management teams can sometimes get into trouble. They, they get into uh, self-preservation mode. They, they put on the rose-colored glasses and think, oh, I'm, you know, just maybe give me a little more money or another six months and we'll figure something out. Um, and uh, often doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we were lucky in that the board gave us several months to explore all of these different options in parallel and see what we could come up with. And we were also very fortunate in that um, we already had been looking for new assets. And pretty quickly, it became clear that one of the discussions we were having um, was had some potential. And uh, we were able to then turn and acquire uh, a small company in France that had a really interesting asset, um, but didn't have the capital or the U.S. presence or, you know, the late stage development capabilities to take it forward. So we were able to quickly um, complete a, a merger and bring in a new program uh, and allow the company to move forward. It was uh, lucky, but also, um, you know, a, a credit to our team and to our board for giving us the room to, to make that sort of um, pivot happen. Now, some listening to this are probably wondering, you, you found an asset on the cheap from a little company in France that, <laughs> that had promise? I mean, this must be the kind of thing that comes from a lot of experience in business development. Like, <laughs> well, how did you find this thing? Yeah, I mean, it is, there is certain amount of, um, you know, our team having a lot of experience in, in BD and already being in the process. So I, I made it sound probably a little more rapid and simple than it actually was. Uh, we looked at over 100 assets um, and uh, kissed a lot of frogs um, or looked at a lot of things that weren't going to be the right strategic fit for us um, before this one fell in place. And there was a, a um, little bit of luck in timing as well. Um, and I don't think we got it on the cheap either. Uh, we ended up uh, doing an acquisition based on stock and gave 35% um, of the company away in order to acquire this asset. So I think it was actually a really nice transaction that was both a win for us and that we brought in this very interesting and highly complementary asset in the orphan endocrine space, but for the investors in Alize, who we acquired, uh, were able to have a very meaningful position, ownership position in the combined company. Okay, so what was it about this asset that uh, made it rise to the top of your list? Now, this is a this is a peptide for Prader-Willi syndrome, and we, and we talked about this at, at J.P. Morgan. So I'd like to share that with our listeners. Yeah, so um, this asset was really interesting to us for, for several reasons. Um, one is that it's in the orphan endocrine space, which is where we were already working um, with our other program, Nivanamibe. Um, and so levolatide, this asset we're now developing in Prader-Willi, um, was a nice compliment in that we have several endocrinologists in-house and uh, know how to do drug development in that space. Um, Prader-Willi is also a really interesting indication um, because it's one of those indications that um, patients have a high diagnosis rate, have a well-defined and clear unmet medical need. And thanks to work um, from another company ahead of us in the space, there's a really well-defined uh, development and regulatory path. Um, so for us, um, that all made a lot of sense in terms of the indication, but then this individual compound as well 
already had completed a phase two study, a large double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study in in 47 patients. So actually uh, a quite large, robust clinical study. Levolatide was the, the peptide, and it had already gone through phase two. And now this is when the minute the minute you say Pratt or Willie, uh, you know, for me that immediately comes to mind was Zafgen because that was the company that came earlier and um, had had helped educate um, me and others in the investment community about this condition, which is this horrible rare disease where people get uh, like uncontrollable hunger. Um, that. It's it's uh, it's hard to explain, but it leads to severe obesity. Um, it ripples through families. Um, it's it's really a, a horrible thing. And Zafgen, for reasons I don't totally get, I mean that didn't work out for them, but they did blaze that trail somewhat with the regulatory agencies and mobilizing the patient community and putting together um, the thought leaders um, around their thesis. And, and so I suppose that, that, you know, that presents certain advantages for a company like yours coming along with a different mechanism, but, uh, f- but with an already kind of activated rare disease community. Absolutely. And, and Zafton had done a great job in defining this indication, putting it on the radar screen of the biopharma community, um, partnering with the regulators and the KOLs. Um, Ultimately, their product, Belorinib, did show really interesting and compelling efficacy in Prader-Willi, but they had their own safety liabilities. So unfortunately, they had uh, several fatalities in their phase three study that resulted in a clinical hold and ultimately them determining uh, that they needed to terminate the drug. Interestingly, um, when we had our own clinical setback, our safety issue with MLE4901, um, who did I reach out to to uh, figure out how to navigate such a safety setback, how to communicate um, such news to your investors, uh, or more importantly, how to manage the um, implications internally? I reached out to Tom Hughes, who had been the CEO of Zafgen and is a great guy, and he was very generous in providing me some input um, because he had already navigated this uh, very serious setback when you're product has an unexpected um, safety liability. So little did I know when I reached out to him that uh, within a year or less than that later, we would actually be working in the um, Prader-Willi space and benefiting from uh, the work that he and his team had done. Well, he had the additional pain of being a public company at the time. So um, he, he had a lot, of, a lot of angry share or disappointed shareholders um, you you at least had the advantage of being private when the PCOS asset um, failed, and and so you uh, were able to um, pivot. Um, but now this this asset uh, that you got, levolatide, has a different mechanism. So um, I, I'm sure that was presented some certain advantages. At least you you, you weren't worried about a belorinib type side effect. How, how did you think about the the, the scientific uh, profile? of this product. Yeah, and I do think the um, the different mechanism, but also the um, really, at least so far, well-established safety profile of the drug has been uh, has been crucial. So levolatide is an, an analog of unacylated ghrelin, and unacylated ghrelin is a hormone that is 
drops precipitously in Prader Willi patients as they um, go from being newborns where um, they actually don't feed much and don't have a particular interest in food. They struggle to get calories in, but then they advance through childhood. And by the time they're about five to eight years old, the symptoms that you were talking about become prevalent. And during that window of time, unisolated ghrelin levels drop dramatically. And so levolatide is trying to replace um, that hormone that uh, is lacking in hyperphagic Prader-Willi patients. Yeah, yeah, to bring them to something closer to what you and I would consider satiety between meals. Correct. And so that's what we had seen in the phase two study, is that there was very meaningful improvement in patients' hyperphagia um, in just two weeks of treatment. So uh, activity that was comparable, um, as best you can do, comparing between trials uh, with what uh, Belorineb had shown in their their studies uh, in Prader-Willi as well. So we're excited about where we go forward from here. You're in a phase, or you're about to begin a phase 2B3 study. So is this going to be the, the registration study? Or do you need to do a we couple do of them? We do believe it has the potential to be registrational and know that a single study uh, could be sufficient given the severity of a disease like this. So yeah, we're starting this quarter um, a pivotal study. Um, we have you know, uh, got the IND open, we've written the full protocol, we've aligned with both the FDA and the EMA on that. Uh, we're working on starting up sites now for um, a large pivotal study, um, large by orphan disease standards, um, that we hope will set us up for an NDA filing. Um, we're going to have data from that study in the first half of 2020. So not that far away. And should it confirm the activity we've already seen in phase two thus far, um, could set us up for NDA filing. So you acquire this asset, you're rebuilding the company. Uh, one other important strategic move you made last year, you decided to go public via the reverse merger. Um, now, that uh, is uh, often a tricky way to go public. Uh, there's often some taint to it, you know, because you're joining a company that's fallen on hard times and is essentially a shell. Um, and, and it, but you, you looked at this and thought this, this was a good way for you to go forward. Why? Um, so we had uh, put together our new pipeline, um, but we're still operating under our Series B financing, and so knew we needed to raise new capital to drive uh, the advancement of our two products in orphan endocrine diseases forward. Um, we were looking at doing a crossover round, we were looking at doing an IPO, um, and had some good options on the table. In fact, uh, you know, we, had, we were very seriously contemplating an IPO in um, the second quarter of last year. Um, but the feedback we were getting from the market was that we were still at least two years away from data from our clinical programs. And that was a little long of a timeline um, for folks to be interested in in supporting an IPO and was going to mean we could probably get public, um, but we were going to do so at a lower valuation um, and with a, requiring a lot more from our insiders than um, was ideal. People were suggesting we do a, a crossover round or a private round and do an IPO now at the end of the year. Um, and our concern and the advice we were getting from bankers was that 
um, the fourth quarter of last year was potentially going to be um, rough in the public markets with the midterm elections, with um, the biotech indices being very high. And they were suggesting that we'd want to raise enough money um, so that if we couldn't pull off an IPO around the end of the year, we weren't stuck. The challenge was moving into some late stage clinical trials. That would have been a, a huge um, private round um, to give us that kind of runway. And as it ends up, that's exactly what happened. The markets did get soft in December. Um, it has been much harder to get out and, and can pull off an IPO over the last several months. So um, we ultimately had on the, the table this possibility of uh, going public via a reverse merger instead. Uh, and, and that's what we chose. We merged with OvaScience. They had what ultimately ended up being $35 million in cash, um, but our investors also put in $30 million and we raised another $20 million from new investors, bringing in a total of $85 million um, and going public in December. Well, doing an IPO and raising $85 million would not have been possible in December. Um, but instead, it has structured us to be public and be well capitalized and to have now cash runway into late 2020, well beyond our next two uh, clinical readouts. So you'll get a good look at that, uh, what should be a, a clear, definitive answer in Pratt or Willie. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a 150-patient, three-arm, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study conducted at 35 centers in U.S. and Europe. So that should be very clear. Last thing I want to ask you, Julia, before we go about this maybe is for younger women out there in the audience thinking about, you know, their careers and their futures, you know, being a, a woman CEO. I know this isn't your favorite topic in the world. You, you want to be known as a biotech CEO, not a woman biotech CEO. Uh, I totally get that. But there's a certain set of issues that, you know, you just have to deal with day in and day out. Um, uh, things like, and, and you, you sometimes talk about this, like on Twitter, I saw at JP Morgan, for instance, uh, you went to one of these CEO dinners and uh, someone on the way out thanked you as if you were the hostess or something and not a fellow CEO there like he was. Uh, and, and that's interesting enough for someone on the outside like me to, to realize that, gee, that, that happens. But then um, I saw your, your former mentor, Carolyn Bertozzi, she noticed this on Twitter and, and doubled down and said, yeah, actually that happens to me too uh, at SAB meetings uh, overseas or sometimes here in the Bay Area. And I thought, I thought boy, um, there's a certain amount of stuff that you're going to encounter that you've got to deal with uh, to get through. How, how, what's your attitude or, or approach to, um, to, you know, dealing with this stuff and doing the best you can? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it, and it was surprising um, to some how many other women chimed in um, in response to that Twitter post and said, yep, happens to me all the time. Um, I don't think people realize and my approach has really been to not get too hung up about it. You know, the CEO who asked me that question, he wasn't trying to be malicious. He was trying to politely, you know, thank someone for a lovely evening. Um, it's going to take time. And I, I can't allow that to hinder me doing the best possible job I can in what I do. It does mean sometimes you got to, um, you know, just 
plow into a room of all men knowing you're going to be the only female CEO there or you know you're going to be one of whatever it is a dozen presenters at the JP Morgan conference even though there's more Michaels um on the um schedule uh, and just accept that I've never been uncomfortable um being in a room of of mostly men maybe because that's how it's been um most of my career um but it does require developing a slightly thicker skin and um, and allowing, you know, pushing yourself to, to walk into that room with confidence or get up on that podium um, with confidence. Uh, it also means I am uh, try to take time to talk to other young women and and share experiences and share thoughts and be open because I have been very fortunate along the way to have so many mentors myself. My my board of directors is 50 percent women. Carol, Carol Gallagher. Uh, joined our board um, back with the Series A and is currently our chairman and has been a wonderful mentor. I've got Carol Nectarline. I've got Mary Lynn Headley. I've got some wonderful board members, mentors, and friends who have helped me along the way. Um, and that sort of um, really helps a lot. And uh, other than that, you just focus on doing the best possible job you can as a CEO, not as a female CEO. 50-50 board representation between men and women. That um, That is not the norm. Um, it's something to aspire to. <laughs> it really does result, though, in a really healthy dialogue. And I think that's what the data also show, is that when there is a more diverse board, and I don't just mean gender, but when you have a diversity of perspectives on a board or on a leadership team, you have more balanced dialogue and companies are more successful. So um, I'm glad to see there's a little of, bit of a push. Bio's pushing for that. <laughs> there's a you know law in California now requiring that at least one woman be on a public board, and that's causing a little bit of change. It's a shame that that's having to be legislated. But I have found from my personal experience, when you have a diverse set of perspectives in the room, um, higher quality dialogue and um, better outcomes result. Yeah, people some, sometimes forget companies die because of groupthink. <laughs> mm-hmm. Julia Owens. It's true. And our upcoming climb of Kilimanjaro, I credit you and Bob Moore and others who have really pushed to make sure our group is half men and half women. And I think that's going to be one aspect that it's going to make that particularly special. It, uh, it does take hard work. Um, and I'm, I'm very much proud of that. And I look forward to uh some some lively conversations on the trail and, and around the, the dining tent. Julia, thank you very much for joining me today on The Long Run. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.